Okay, so this is part three of our current event weekly Bible study for November 11th, 2007. And we're continuing with the study on the major causes of Israel's afflictions, the Jews and Gentiles from Jesus Christ to Revelation. And we're gonna, now we're going to go back to um, the original uh, article that I was quoting from. And um, I, I, hopefully we've established a pretty good foundation at this point, scripturally. And please, if you're if this is the first study you clicked into, you really need to go back and listen to part one and two before this will fully make sense. So, uh, if we go further, with the exception of a small number of Jews, Jewish believers, the upcoming generations condone the act of their forefathers, meaning this act where they crucified Jesus Christ and rejected him, and thus persisted with the national rejection of Jesus as the Messiah during the Diasporia. Now remember, the Diasporia is considered the dispersion of Jews outside of Israel from the 6th century B.C. when they were exiled to Babylonia until present time. Okay, well, and again, they're, they're coming back into their country, obviously, um, and they have been, but um, that's what the Diasporia, if you see that word, so, um, when Jesus comes again, the Bible says that um, every eye will see him and these types of things. Now, this is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Let's just turn there real quick. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Revelation 1, verse 5. And Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now remember, we were reiterating how important the blood of Jesus Christ is. Um, you know, praise the Lord. Um, and hath made us kings and priests unto God in his Father. Well, that's pretty cool, praise the Lord. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him. Well, most likely, what this is obviously in reference to is at the end of the uh, tribulation. And they also, which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even the Amen. Well, again, the reason that he was actually pierced was because of what the Jews, both the religious Jews and corporately the Jews, did when they said, crucify him. Take away Jesus Christ, give us Barabbas, let his blood be upon us and our generations. Okay, so, um, when it says, and they also which pierced him, will see him when he's coming in the clouds. Okay, so, uh, this is something that um, is interesting to note. Now, if we, if we go further, this next section is titled, Restoration and Unbelief. Did God break his covenant with Israel after they were dispersed from their land? Certainly not. God's covenant with Israel as his chosen people is irrevocable. Uh, now, if we, if we go to um, Leviticus 26, verse 13. Leviticus 26, verse 13. That's where we'll start here. A lot of scripture today. Um, 26 verse 13. And this, the uh, Lord speaking to the Jews, I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt. Well, obviously this is in reference to the Jews. That's why a lot of times, like somebody will, will cite certain verses, but a lot of times I'll go outside what they'll cite, because 
I've noticed that they go right into some verse and they don't establish the context of the verse. You have to establish the context. Who is the Lord speaking to? So, in this regard, we know it's obvious because it says, The Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their bondsmen, and I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you go upright. Okay, this is what the Lord did for the Jews when he liberated them out of Egypt. But if you will not hearken unto me, and will not do these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that ye will not do all my commandments, but that ye break my covenant, I will also do this unto you. So he's saying, okay, if you do this, if you break my commandments and do these things, here's what I'm going to do to you. I will also do this unto you. I will even appoint over you terror, consumption, which consumption could be... Um, um, lung disease, and also disease of the eye. Uh, consumption with burning or ague. Now, I'm not 100% sure what that means, but burning ague doesn't sound good. Uh, that shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of the heart. And ye shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and ye shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you, and ye shall flee when none pursueth you. Isn't this what's happened to the Jews, particularly since they rejected Jesus Christ? I mean, just think about the Holocaust and Hitler. I mean, you shall be slain before your enemies? They that hate you shall reign over you? Isn't that a really good example of the Holocaust? And I'm just using that one example. But I'm just saying, it's, it's interesting. Uh, terrible, but interesting. Uh... And then let's go a little bit further. Now let's go to verse 44 of the same chapter. And yet, for all that, when they be in the land of your enemies, I will not cast them away. Neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them. Now, God is speaking in reference to the Jews here. Even after they've done all this wickedness, God says, and yet, for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, meaning the Jews, I will not cast them away. Now, this is a type of verse that a lot of people that are into, let's say, the British Israelism or whatever, they would ignore. Because God says He's not going to cast... Remember, remember it says they're still beloved for the elect's sake. They're, they're enemies of the gospel, but they're still beloved... For the elect's sake, and in, 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 in the sight of God. And we, we quoted that verse earlier. So, again, let's have some balance here. Let's, let's look at all sides of this issue. I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to utterly, to destroy them utterly. Remember, God is always going to preserve a remnant of, his, of the Jews, and of his chosen elect. Okay, And in this case, it's going to be a one-third remnant that comes through the fire, and is refined as silver and gold through the tribulation, particularly through the latter half. Okay, So I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them, to destroy them utterly, and to break my covenant with them. See, God's still not going to break His covenant. They may have walked away from God, but God hasn't walked away from them. He's, You know what it's like? He's letting them have it their way. They wanted Jesus Christ to be upon them and upon their children. He's let them have it their way for 2,000 years since then. And even before that. He's not going to have it their way. Because God doesn't kick the door down to your heart. You either freely receive Him or you freely reject. And that within the freely receiving and freely rejecting is also woven very, very tightly with repentance. 
Okay? Because in order to freely receive Him, you have to repent. You can't come to God in pride and not repent and say, well, yeah, I'll accept you as my Lord. It doesn't work that way. Okay? So, if we go further, um, but I will, for their sakes, this is the Jews' sakes, remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God and I am their Lord. Now, this is basically in reference to the tribulation, because when has God done this? When has this happened? Okay? I mean, this is after Egypt. He just said he brought him forth out of the land of Egypt. This is future. And this is going to happen during, you know, particularly the tribulation. I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God, I am the Lord. These are the statutes and the judgments and the laws which the Lord made between him and the children of Israel. In Mount Sinai, by the hand of Moses, this is very specifically a Jewish um, prophecy and covenant, uh, reiteration of the covenant that God made with the Jews. Okay, That doesn't apply to the standard born-again Christian believer. Okay, This is a Jewish thing. And, and that's fine. This is, you know, this is his rule book. So if we go further, throughout the centuries, there was always a small believing remnant who kept the flame, kept the flame of the true Israel of God alive. Their numbers will be considerably increased after the unbelieving majority have been restored to their land and some of them also spiritually revived. Well, again, you know, um, that's going to happen, but it's going to um, happen through tribulation. You know, which is, is not going to be a pretty sight here. Now, let's go to Ezekiel 36, verse 21. Ezekiel 36, 21. Okay, Ezekiel 36, verse 21. But I had pity... For mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, heathen whither ye went. I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in your eye, in you, before their eyes. Huh. Let's read that again. The heathen shall know that I am the Lord. The heathen shall know that I am the Lord. Saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you, before their eyes. In who? In the Jews. When God's sanctified in the Jews' eyes, then the heathen are going to know that He is Lord. See, He's doing this to accomplish multiple purposes, really. Verse 24. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries and will bring you into your own land. Well, when did this happen? Well, 1948? When Israel came back as a nation? Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from your idols, and I will cleanse you. And again, now this is primarily going to happen during the tribulation. The gathering's been taking place for a long time. Okay? Verse 26, A new heart also will I give you, 
And a new spirit will I put within you. What is this new spirit? It's the Holy Spirit. Because they're actually, a third of them are actually going to get saved. A new heart. Not a stony heart, but a new heart. A heart of flesh. A, a heart that's been circumcised. A heart that it's had, remember, the veil removed. Because up until this time, the veil still on their hearts. They have eyes, but they cannot see. Blindness in part has happened to the Jew until the fullness of the Gentile come in. A blindness in part has happened to Israel. Okay, which is even more specific, you know, as far as, you know, the race. So, a new heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. How does that happen? When you get born again, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. See, when the one-third remnant gets, get, gets this right and gets saved and Jesus comes back and, and, and splits the Mount, Mount of Olives and Jesus goes into the 1,000-year millennial reign where he's going to rule the world with a rod of iron, this is when this is going to ultimately transpire. Okay, We're all leading up to that point right now. And you shall dwell in your land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Now that's a really cool tie-in and segue to this teaching. That's something important to talk about. But notice, it, it said back in verse um, 21, But I had pity for my mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen. Therefore thus saith the, unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes. Well, they had really done nothing but turn their back on God. O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen. He had made a covenant with them, and really he's doing it for the sake of his holy name and for the sake of his covenant, which he had made them, because just because Israel turned their back on God doesn't mean God's going to, to lower their, himself to their level and turn his back on them forever. He's going to preserve a remnant ultimately. And that's what's happened here. That's, and, and also, this is a witness to the heathen. It's another accomplishment of all of this. So, kind of an interesting point there. Um, if we go further now, the time of Jacob's trouble since, the rest, since Israel's restoration in 1948 the animosity of the unbelieving majority towards Jesus and the Christians who worship him have, have intensified although they achieved resounding victories in the war since 1948 the hostility and military capacity of their enemies are on the, are on the increase Israel is now facing the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, let's go to Jeremiah 30, verse 1. Jeremiah 30, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying... Now, what this, the, the subtitle of this is the summary of Israel in, in the tribulation. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. So he's telling Jeremiah to write this down, which obviously did, because that's what we're reading. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Well, isn't that what's happened? Kind of neat. The Bible, again, just keeps confirming what's obviously either already happened or going to happen. And these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel 
and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. We've heard the voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins? And as a woman in travail, and all the faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that great, for that day is great, so that none is like it, even it is even the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. Now, what does this make reference to? Let's read Zechariah 13.8 again. And it shall come to pass that in, that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die. That's pretty terrifying. Think about, like, in America right now. What if two-thirds of all the people were, were snuffed out? That'd be pretty terrifying. Okay? But the third part shall be left therein. Verse 9. And I will bring the third part through the fire. And we'll refine them as silver is refined, and we'll try them as gold is tried. Now, I'm sorry I keep saying this verse over and over again, but, but it's pivotal to this teaching. They shall call upon my name, I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. Well, look what it says here. For, in verse 5, Jeremiah 30, verse 5. For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. See, this is what's going to lead up to this one-third of the remnant's conversion. A lot of fear... A lot of trembling and a lot of peace, or, or and not of peace. And again, all you have to do is look at the Middle East right now, and it's it's like you know a boiling pot, and we we haven't even seen the half of it yet. Okay, so you look at this, and it's pretty obvious that the stage has been set for this, and it's going to get so bad though, it's not going to get any better if you live in Israel. And then he says, "Ask ye now that you see whether a man doth travail with a child." Where do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail and all the faces are turned into paleness? They are going to be scared to death. Scared of, of impending doom. But see, out of this, the Lord's going to refine and try, as gold and silver, a third part of the remnant. Two-thirds are going to perish. And then, and then he goes, the Lord goes on to say, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, it is even the time of Jacob's trouble. You got a question? So, if we go back, um, so this this is the time of Jacob's trouble. And uh, uh, Doug had just asked a question in regard to the travailing of the child and comparing this to the man. And I think with this with this portion of scripture, we need to look at the verses above and below to get the full context. And in verse 5, it says, We've heard the voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. So, as a woman would travail in child, she's anticipating something that um, is not going to be fun, that probably, in, in particularly with, with uh, I guess it depends on the woman, but maybe would provoke fear in them. I know if I was going to have a baby, I'd have fear. <laughs> I mean, oh, I can't even imagine. And don't want to, but... Um, this is how it's... And then it says, in the same verse of verse 6, it says, all the faces return to paleness. Meaning, they're, they're, you know, like, all the blood has went out of them. They're so scared of what's to come. Okay? And Jesus is going to make this, let it be this way so much, because evidently it's going to take that type of fear in, in humbling themselves. Because when you're, when you're fearful, you're pretty humble. you got to admit. Um, typically, at least. Not not everyone, but but that if, if there's an emotion that can evoke humility, enough fear can do it. Um, 
this fear is, is going to be one of the main things that drives them into the arms of Jesus Christ because he's going to be their only deliverer. He's going to be their only hope, their only redeemer. There's going to be nothing left. Everything's going to be stripped from them. All their false religion, all whatever they're trusting in, their military or whatever, it's all going to be stripped from them, most likely. And then, then it says that, alas, for that day is great, and that none is like it, it is even the time of Jacob's trouble. And then most likely this is going to be in conjunction with the midpoint of the tribulation, the three and a half year tribulation, when the Antichrist goes in and commits the abomination of desolation, where he goes into the temple and proclaims himself to be God, as it talks about in Daniel 9.27, and, and elsewhere in scripture. And so, this is going to coincide with the great tribulation and Jacob's trouble. And this is most likely when the two-thirds of the Jews will, will perish, and the one-third will be refined through the fire. So, if we go uh, further here, God allows these afflictions to purge the faithful remnant. And, you know, he just doesn't do it with the Jews. He's, he's done it with, you know, Christians as well. Hosea says the following about the first and second comings of the Messiah and Israel's ultimate salvation by him. Um, now, let's go to Hosea 5, 4, 5.14. Hosea 5.14 Now, and then it says, For I, now this is in regard to essentially Jesus Christ, the Messiah, For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion, and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away and none shall rescue him. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction. They will seek me early. Well, hold on. This is the Lord talking to the Jews. Right? For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. We're in reference to the Lord talking to the Jews here. Okay? But it says something interesting here. I, even I, will tear and go away. Who's going to go away? The Lord. I will take away and none shall rescue him. I will go and return to my place, it says. Till they acknowledge their offense. Well, what is this kind of representative of? Isn't this kind of representative of when Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived 33 years, crucified, you know, buried, rose again on the third day, came back, showed himself to basically thousands of people, and then ultimately ascended into heaven. But yet, through all that, the Jews corporately did not repent of their wickedness. We've already looked at the verses. Now, I'm not saying a lot of people didn't get saved who were Jews, but I'm saying from a corporate standpoint, the country did not accept Jesus Christ. Well, he said in verse 15, and this is his word, remember, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Well, isn't that representative of Jesus Christ ascending into heaven, who is now seated, seated at the right hand of God the Father, and ever maketh intercession for the saints? Until they, who is they? Who is they is, is if we go up to verse 13, Ephraim and Judah. We're, we're in reference to the, to the Jewish nations here. Till they acknowledge their offense. 
They haven't done that yet. They still haven't done it. Isn't that cool? That is so cool. I never saw that. So, he says, I will tear and go away. And this is also representative of the ascension of Jesus Christ after he announced the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of the Jews. I will go to my place. That's in regard to heaven. But it has to be the people of Israel acknowledging their offense. You know, in regard, in, in regard to... He's not going to return until that takes place. When is he going to come back? He's going to come back at the end of the tribulation. Riding on a white horse. King of kings and lord of lords. The vesture dipped in blood. I mean, it's... With his saints. 10,000 of his saints. So, you know, this is just... Talk about the Bible coming alive. I mean, this is amazing. So, and if we go to chapter 6. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. So eventually he's going to heal the Jews. He hath smitten, and, we will bind, and he will bind us up. So see, he had to bring them through, unfortunately, this 2,000 years of persecution in order for them to be prepared to be bound up, to be healed. But up until this point, they've been torn and they've been smitten. After two days, will he revive us? Oh, this gets good. In the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Check this out. This guy that, that I'm, I'm actually quoting some excerpts from this man's, and a lot of it obviously is, I'm interjecting a lot, but this is a really neat thing. He has some interesting notes here. If you're just reading that, you'd say, after two days, he will revive us. What is that? Now, I have got to find that verse. Boy, maybe I misplaced it. There's a verse in the Bible which says, A day is as to the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as, as, as of a day. God is not subject to the tame, same time constraints we are subject to. He is outside of time. Now, I know that's kind of hard to understand, but it's the same reason why God could take um, John and show him what's going to happen in the future. Takes John in the Isle of Patmos, and he shows him all these things are going to happen that's even future for us. How can he do that? Because he can take somebody out of time and put them in another time frame to show them that. Think of time, which something really God is something God created for our benefit. Think of time as a big capsule. Okay? And on one end of the capsule, just think for argument's sake, uh, Garden of Eden. And on the, on the opposite end, think of the end of the millennium. Okay? Because I think that's basically what we're talking about here. God can look in that capsule from any particular time and know exactly what's going to happen. This is why all these prophecies were written and fulfilled with such pinpoint accuracy. Because the Lord was the actual author of this book by the power of the Holy Spirit. Although many men he used to author the book, ultimately, he was the author. So he knows what's going to happen. That's why he can build these prophecies in there and fulfill them like this. So he's not subject to our, our same constraints. Um, so anyway, that's just kind of an interesting uh, thing there. But, that verse where it talks about, and I, and I had printed the verse out, 
last night, and evidently I forgot to uh, stick it in here on my on my little study. But the verse is essentially that a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day to the Lord. So it can be either way. Okay. So when it says here. In verse 2 of Hosea 6, after two days will he revive us. Because see, he's talking about going away to his place, to heaven. And at the same time, he's talking about that, you know, um, the only way he's going to come back is after they've acknowledged their offense. When are they going to finally acknowledge their offense? Basically, probably toward the end of the tribulation. After two days. Well, how long has it been since Jesus Christ was here on this earth? About 2,000 years. A day is to the Lord is 1,000 years. Okay, so this is 2,000 years that went by. And then he says, in the third day, he will raise us up. At the start of the third day, which will be the start of the thousand year millennial reign, where Jesus will come back from Jerusalem and rule with a rod of iron, he's going to raise the Jewish race up. Isn't that cool? I, I'll tell you what, that, that, was, that is neat. I mean, that is really, really neat. So, anyway, it's a really, really cool way to... Uh, to look at that, and I think it's very biblical. It is obvious from these verses that Israel as a nation will only seek the Lord in their affliction. Zechariah, I mean, it's all, it's obvious. They're only going to seek God through their affliction. Zechariah mentions the, the shocking death toll of the coming great tribulation during which only a remnant of Israel will be saved. We've already read that. Zechariah 13, verse 8 and 9, where it talks about two-thirds dying and a third coming through. Jesus said the following about the terrible time of the Antichrist. After declaring himself to be God in the rebuilt temple of Jerusalem, will attempt to annihilate Israel and all other people who refuse to acknowledge and worship him. I mean, I wouldn't really want to be a Jew right now. So a lot of people say, oh, I wish I was a Jew and all this. Aha! Uh -huh, not me, I'm sorry. I don't know what I'm going to have to go through and I don't know, but not anything I'd want to <laughs> Sorry, but it's just not. So if we go to Matthew 24, verse 15. Matthew 24, verse 15. 24, verse 15. Uh, the Olivet Discourse. Uh, this is in regard to the uh, second half of the tribulation, or the start of the Great Tribulation, this is, this is the mid part of the Tribulation. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, this is, I believe, in Daniel 9.27, yes, Daniel 9.27, Stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Let them which are in Judea flee into the mountains. Now, isn't this in reference to the Jews? Oh, no, it's in reference to us as Christians. Oh, well, are, are you going to be in, in um, Judea when all this happens? Doubtful. Let him which is in the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor shall ever be. Well, it's not going to get any worse than this. This is why the Bible can say that a man is going to be, his face is going to turn pale and he's going to be as a woman in travail and these types of things. Because it's going to be unlike anything we could probably even comprehend or perceive. Okay, so that's, uh, and then it goes further. Let's see here. Verse 22, and except those days should be shortened, this is how bad it's going to be. Except those days be shortened, there shall no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. 
because he's always going to preserve an elect. And in this case, the elect in, in regard to Israel, I'm not saying there's no other people that are going to be saved, but what I'm saying is in regard to Israel, the elect is going to be the third. And again, this is the emphasis does shift more back to the Jews during the tribulation. I think if you look at the end time scenarios in Revelation and what Jesus talks about, that is going to be the case. Okay? It doesn't mean that, you know, the Gentiles aren't going to come into play at all. It's just, really, we're just looking at facts here. Verse 23, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. Now remember, I've done these teachings on these ascended masters, who claim to be, you know, Jesus Christ incarnate, the fifth Buddha, Krishna, who knows, you know. But they're antichrists. They're not Christ. Because the Bible says in verse 24, There shall arise false Christs, and false prophets, and show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now that's already happening to a certain extent. We're, we're getting the warm-up. But it's going to get even worse. Because they're going to be permitted to really probably do many more miracles of lying signs and wonders. And you better adhere to the King James Bible and the Word of God instead of going with your heart and believing everything you might hear or say or whatever. Because the thing is, is your heart will deceive you. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9 The Bible says, Whoso trusteth in his heart is a fool. Proverbs 28, verse 26. Um, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 14.12 and Proverbs 16.25 So these are things we really want to, you know, you need to rely on the Word of God. Don't rely on me. Don't rely, I mean, I'm telling you, rely on the Word of God. So, because... I'm a man, I'm capable of failing you, just like any other man. Okay, so I'm, what I'm trying to do is show you that I'm not trying to hold myself to a different accountability than I would hold any other preacher. Okay, so hopefully I'm giving you good stuff. You know, pray, pray to God I am, but I'm just saying, just as a general premise, you, you want to adhere to the Word of God. So, if we go further, um, okay, so we read that. Now, this is also an interesting part, where it talks about praying for the peace of Jerusalem. How then should we, in light of biblical prophecies, pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Because it does make mention of this in Psalm 122, verse 6, and Isaiah 62, verse 6 and 7, about praying for the peace of Jerusalem, they will prosper, that love thee, these types of things. Okay, We should indeed pray a New Testament prayer for Jerusalem's peace, but it should be strictly of a Christian origin, okay, and, and we're going to explain this. There is a very special relationship between Jesus and Jerusalem. Obviously, he is Messiah, King of Jerusalem, who will rule over um, Jerusalem, who will rule over his millennial kingdom from the restored throne of David in Jerusalem. Now, this is made mention of in Acts 15, 16 through 17, Amos 9, 11 and 12, and Isaiah 16, 5. Before that wonderful time, however, Jerusalem will be the scene of persecution, hardships, severe afflictions. Jesus not only said that Jerusalem would become desolate, broken down, and trampled by the Gentiles until the end time, but also that Israel would have to pass through the Great Tribulation before they will be saved. Of what avail of it? Of what avail is it to pray that Jerusalem's predominantly unsaved inhabitants should be spared the attack of their enemies if these are the very means appointed by God to try them and expedite their spiritual salvation? Ooh, now that's a good point. Oh, but not not according to the Christian Zionists or the Messianic Jews or whatever. Oh no, no, we can't do that. 
No, we know better than God, evidently. That's what you're saying. This is, these are the very means. Bringing them through the fire is the very means that the one-third remnant is going to be saved in Jerusalem and ultimately have their eyes open. See, we view persecution and the fire and the refiner's fire and all these things as negative, but God views them the exact opposite because almost always in Scripture, those are the very means the Lord will use in order to get somebody right with Him. Because these types of situations make you realize how helpless and how hopeless you are without the Lord Jesus Christ. You humble yourself, and then God can actually work with you. Okay? So that's, I think that's pretty much why. God will not allow only allow the restored Jerusalem to be attacked by its enemies, but he will also allow its capture and near destruction to force the city's inhabitants to cry out to him for help and salvation. The Lord essentially says in Zechariah 14.2, I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be shaken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity. Essentially, that's what it's saying. That's what it's saying. What does John Hagee do with all these verses I'm giving you today? They're in the Bible. When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we should also pray that the Jews accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah, Christ, King, Savior, Prince of Peace in their hearts. And also that many Jews will be saved during the coming Great Tribulation when Jerusalem and the land will be the scene of very big wars. Now, what greater blessing could you pray on somebody than they get saved? What, what really else matters in the grand scheme of things? That should be the main... But see, oh, no, no, we can't evangelize the Jews. They're going to heaven anyway, according to these guys. We're going to talk about that in a second here. Now, here's some examples of distorted prophetic visions. Okay? We're going to look at some examples of distorted prophetic visions. Many Christians have distorted prophetic visions, such as the following. Now, this is, see, these are some of the problems in these apostate movements like John Hagee's. He's, he's taken it to a new level, as far as I'm concerned. But here's some problems. Here's some things of, of distorted prophetic visions. Here's one. They condone Israel in their unsaved condition as the chosen people of God and unconditionally ascribe all the blessings of the millennium to the present generation. Big, gigantic mistake. The only way they're going to get to the millennium is through great tribulation and suffering and, then, and even then only a third are going to get there. They deny the need for, for the fire of God's appointed purging of the nation and consequently allege that Israel and the world are not heading for great tribulation. Well, that contradicts just about everything we've just read. They, number three, they expect a mighty revival. Unfortunately, this will be a revival of deceptive signs. But they, they expect a mighty revival of signs and wonders that will sweep the nation into the kingdom of God and usher in the millennium without a tribulation. Well, what's that? That's dominionism. We're just going to usher in the kingdom because we're so holy. Please. This is a big movement among Pentecostals and these types of people. There's not going to be a tribulation. Oh no, haven't you heard? No, there's going to be no tribulation. It's just going to get gooder and gooder and gooder. Pardon my French. And everything's going to get better and better. And we're just going to usher in the kingdom. And there's going to be all kind of signs and wonders that are going to convince the Jews. Well, why? Because the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after knowledge. 
So they're going to respect all these signs and wonders. And, they, and let me tell you something, the Antichrist is going to give, them, give it to them abundantly. He's going to give them exactly what they want to hear. The big signs, you know, whatever, we're calling fire down from heaven. Who knows what he's going to do? Or what he's going to be permitted to do? Because Jesus Christ is on the throne. Here's another problem. Four. They neglect to warn Israel and the nations against the coming false Messiah, the Antichrist, who will deceive them by concluding a covenant with them according to Daniel 9.27 and John 5.43. Well, let's talk about this. Daniel 9.27. Let's just look at this real quick. Daniel 9.27. And he, meaning the, the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. With many. Most likely this covenant is going to be between the Jews and many other nations. Most likely the Palestinians as well. And in the midst of that week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Why is that? Because in the midst of the tribulation of three and a half years, the, the temple will be rebuilt. He is going to cause the sacrifice... An oblation to cease, the Antichrist, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it he shall make it desolate. This is called the abomination of desolations, okay, committed by the Antichrist, even until the consummation in that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. Now, let's go get a little further clarification on this and let's go to John five forty three. John five forty three. I am come, now this is Jesus Christ talking to the religious Jews, we talked about this verse last week, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. This is Jesus Christ talking to the religious Jews. If another shall come in his own name, him ye him, him shall receive. Well, this is the Antichrist that they're going to receive, who he's going to confirm the covenant with for a week, um, and this is in regard, in confirmation of Daniel 9.27. Here's another problem. This is point five. They, meaning these people that are off base, they refrain from boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ as the only Savior of Israel and the nations as it would offend the Jews and also many other people. They pretend and pray that Jerusalem could have peace without Jesus. They do not commit themselves to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus in that city. There are various Christian ministries in and outside of Israel who are guilty of promoting some or all of the distorted visions mentioned above. Most of them agree to the fact that no Jew or Gentile can be saved without Jesus, except for John Hagee. Well, not except, but he's the main one. But in their actions and outreaches, very little or no emphasis is placed on Jewish evangelism. Now let's just read, what does John Hagee believe about this whole thing? Well, he believes in another gospel. John uh, 1.11 says, And he, meaning Jesus Christ, came to his own, the Jews, and his own received him not. Jesus said in John 14.6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Galatians 3.26-29 says, For ye are all children of God, by faith, in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, 1 and verse 11. If ye be 
risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Ephesians 2.8.9 For you are saved by grace through faith, not by being a Jew. You are saved by grace through faith, and not now of yourselves, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Careful evaluation of the teachings of Hagee, pastor of the San Antonio-based Cornerstone Church, reveals false teachings in a defective view of basic and essential issue regarding salvation and the gospel. Hagee preaches another way of salvation for the Jew, which is in direct violation of Paul's warnings in Galatians 1, 6-9. Let's just go there real quick. Galatians 1, 6-9. Galatians 1, 6-9. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. This is what John Hagee's doing. He's bringing himself, he's already been under, but he's really openly, boldly bringing himself under a curse. Then it says in verse 9, as I said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, then that ye have received, let him be accursed. It says it twice. So he's really wanting to emphasize it. So this is... Um, you know, and then in verse 7, I'm sorry I didn't read that, but, which is not another, this gospel, this false gospel, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. This is what Hagee is doing. The, the this theological concept that John Hagee believes in is um, referred to as either two covenant or dual covenant theology. Hagee's website tells us that his vision is for world evangelism. The burning passion of his heart is to win the lost, to Jesus Christ in America and around the world. End of quote. The statement is not altogether true, since he will not evangelize the Jews and teach his salvation on another basis than the gospel for the Jewish people. See, it doesn't apply to them because of the Jewish blood that runs through their veins. They get a free pass, evidently. Now, we're going to quote a verse from Philippians here, but I'll give you a definition first. The Webster's 1828 dic uh, Dictionary defines the word concision as literally a cutting off. In the scripture, the Jews are those who adhered to circumcision, which after our Savior's death was no longer a seal of the covenant, but a mere cutting of the flesh. In other words, they were relying on their circumcision, their law, their whatever, their good works, in order to basically be justified before the Lord. Now evidently, Hagee believes the Jews who still believe we are saved through the law are right. At least for the Jews. That's what he evidently believes. That they, that they don't get saved the same way that another person does. Philippians 3, verses 2 and 8 says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Now remember, we just defined concision. These would be Jews who basically believe you, you get saved through works of righteousness. These types of things. Or perceived works of righteousness. For we are the circumcision. Then it says, For we are the circumcision the spiritual circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh. I mourn. This is Paul, the, you know, 
the Jew of all Jews, basically, circumcised in the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. But that which were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of things, and do count but dung, that I may win Christ. That's what Paul thought about all this stuff at this point. Hagee would have to object, though. So, um, these are in regard to these apostate, so-called pseudo-Christian religions, even in their prayer requests, the subject of evangelizing the Jews is easily omitted, while supporters are only asked to pray for the safety of the region. Yet, the destruction and the judgment of that reason is how God's going to use the Jews to get right with him, as we just saw. Um, you know, they talk about things like containing the PLO and the, and the Islamic people and peace in the Middle East and immigration of the Jews and more houses, more cars, more economic progress prosperity, more contributions. None of these things are going to get the Jews right with the Lord. So what does it really matter? It would actually be better if it happened quicker because we'd all be through it quicker. If you really think about it. We should have long-term spiritual interests of Israel at heart. We should also, from a clear biblical prophecies, prepare Israel on the problems that are to come that are clearly in their Bible as well as the New Testament. Okay? Now, ask yourself a question. What is more, what is more loving? Is, is, it the, is it the message that I am bringing forth today, or would it be John Hagee's message of false hope? Basically, get out of jail free card, ethnic salvation for the Jews. What is John Hagee's message ultimately going to get the Jew? Hell. What if they listen to this message, which is just really hopefully the Bible, not, I'm not wanting to put the emphasis on me, but let's give the Lord the credit, and the Lord the glory, what if they listen to this message? Oh, well, they won't like it. Who cares what they like and what they don't like? I care enough about them to tell them the truth. That hopefully their souls would be saved. Am I therefore become their enemy because I tell them the truth? Well, that's the way it typically played out with most Jews. Ask Jesus Christ. Was he their enemy because he told them the truth? Yep. Pretty much. That's the way they view it. Was Stephen their enemy? Yep. Well, I'm in good company then. Praise the Lord. So, um, if we go further, a very evil, um, a very evil and sinister person will shortly appear on the scene. The Bible calls him the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, the lawless one. According to 1 John 2.18, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 8. We either belong to the true Lord Jesus Christ and will escape God's judgment upon a sinful world, or we will be surrendered to the false Messiah and his reign of terror. Now, as far as us escaping God's judgment, yes, but... Um, that doesn't mean that we might not have to majorly suffer in the times to come. Okay, uh, That remains to be seen. The main problem in Israel, but again, the Lord will get you through that. Okay, He can give you this. He's the only one that can do it. The main problem in Israel, as well as in many of the Christian ministries supporting and serving them, is the denial of Jesus Christ as the Messiah and only Savior of the world. While some of the latter do not explicitly deny him, they nevertheless do so implicitly by keeping quiet when they should be bold witnesses for Jesus, according to Acts 1.8. Ministries which do not clearly convey to Israel the message of Jesus' Messiahship are not really doing them any real good, which is really the truth. What are they giving them? Fluff? 
oh, we just want to be associated with the Jews. We just want them to like us. Let me tell you something. The average Jew thinks of us as, the term is called a goyim, which is kind of like, you know, like a heathen animal or something. It's, they, don't, they don't view us in, in a positive way. Trust me, they don't. Um, for the most part, at least. How would the Orthodox and non-practicing Jews be able to identify and resist the false Messiah and turn to the true Messiah during their coming afflictions if they were not properly informed beforehand? Now, this is one of the main reasons for the existence of this ministry that you hear today as a watchman, as, as a, a teaching ministry regarding these end times. Um, this ministry that the Lord has entrusted myself with and any other one that that would um, support this ministry, that, you know, he's entrusting them as well. So, that's why we're in existence. The, the entire world is presently following the popular course of denying Jesus and his unique gospel of salvation by adopting interfaith and secular constitutions relating Christ to the level of a New Age Messiah in non-Christian religions. Building a new world order from which Jesus Christ is deliberately excluded for the sake of global unity among all peoples, ideologies, and faith. Since Christ is our peace, there is no real peace outside him. For that reason, man-made peace programs are doomed to utter failure. Remember when the Bible says, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5.3 So let's go further. The coming... Worldwide distress of nations will be a direct result of instituting a Christless new world order, and that is why Jesus Christ himself will return to bring order and righteousness. Let's go to Luke 21.25. We're getting close to the end. I'm sorry about how long this was, but uh, it's necessary in order to cover everything. Luke 21.25. Luke 21:25 And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity and the sea and the waves roaring men's hearts failing them for fear now here again we go with a woman in travail man being as a woman in travail men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heaven shall be shaken see remember an unsaved person this is this is as close as they're ever going to get to heaven you know, especially a rich man. You know, this is their, this is their, what they've built, and they're gonna, they're gonna be fearful for so many reasons. Not only for their own life, lives of the family, fear of losing everything. Look at all that I've built; it's all gonna be gone. Well, they're gonna be fearful for a lot of reasons. Verse twenty-seven, and then they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Amen. Praise the Lord. When the judgments of God are poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world, it will eventually dawn to people that the fury of the Lamb whom they have denied has been unleashed against them. Let's go to Revelation 6, verse 16. Revelation 6, verse 16. And said unto the mountains, well, let's go to 15, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens of the rocks of the mountains. Remember this, this, you know what I keep seeing here over and over, it's the fear that is going to be on the unsaved. 
See, God's going to humble everybody. He's going to humble. He's going to let them see, even before they plunge into hell, how helpless they really are. Because God will share His glory with no one. And all these people that lived and walked in pride and said, oh, look at me, look what I did, and all this stuff. God's going to take strip all that from them before ultimately they end up plunging into hell. Now, hopefully some people are going to get saved through this, and I believe that's the case. But most of them aren't. And then they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of this wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? Um, these people, it says, they cried unto, they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. Well, they did this because they didn't know God. They probably don't even, they don't even know how to pray to him. And they were given over at that point to a reprobate mind anyway. So it was pointless. They, 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 they knew better not to even cry out to God. But, you know, the, the rocks and the, these things falling on them, all it's going to do is put them in hell then. It's a bad scenario. I mean, it's as bad of a scenario as you could possibly get. When people are faced with dire consequences of rejecting and denying the one who alone is the light and life of this world, death will be preferable to them than to face him whose eyes are as a flame of fire, according to Revelation 1.14. Anguish and terror will overcome them as they flee from his presence. Uh, let's go to Zechariah. 14.12 We've been in Zechariah a lot today. Zechariah 14.12 And this place shall be and this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Okay, now this is in the end time battle. Their flesh shall be consumed away while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes. And their tongues shall consume away in their mouth. Well, probably when Jesus Christ comes back on a white horse with 10,000 of his saints, they're going to put a serious hurting on the armies at Armageddon. <laughs> and it's going to be like, it sounds like it's almost like a nuclear type of thing that's going to be done, or at least a nuclear type of, of effect on them. Flesh shall be consumed away while they stand on their feet, and their eyes shall be consumed away in their holes, and their tongues shall... Oof, man, that's, that's about as bad as it gets. All the people of the earth, and the believers and the deniers of Christ, are most assuredly heading for a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. One way or another, we all are. Me included. God has given him a name which is above every name, and that name, and in that name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and give glory to the Father. According to Philippians 9... Philippians 2, 9-11. The true believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of their lives, according to Romans 14, 10, and 12. While the unbelievers will be subjects of the wrath of the Lamb, at the end of the tribulation period, when Christ comes back to earth, the remnant of Israel and the nations will mourn for Him. Now, Matthew 24, 29. Matthew 24, 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation... Of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. And, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. So, it says that. I mean, there, all the tribes of the earth will, will, 
more more, and I believe these specifically, if we really look at this, probably mostly the tribes of Israel, whom they they'll sit they'll look upon whom they've pierced, as the Bible talks about. So, why will Israel mourn for him? They will realize that all their afflictions and tribulations were a direct result of denying and rejecting the Holy One of Israel, who alone is mighty to save. When did this start? Well, really, it really, you can boil it back to when they said, let his blood be upon us and our children. The five rejections at Pilate. Now granted, they did, they did things before and after that to reject him. I'm just, I'm hitting the, the main points today. I mean, that would be a really sobering thing to finally come to this conclusion. But it's going to happen. Praise the Lord it's going to happen. Because if it didn't happen, they'd all die. They will mourn, confess their sins, accept Jesus Christ as Savior and King, the mourning of repentant of the re- repentant remnant in Israel on that soon coming day is a vividly described by one of the ancient prophets. Zechariah 12, verse 8. Going back to Zechariah again. Zechariah's really had the preeminence today. I don't want to make any of the other books jealous, but I mean, Zechariah is definitely getting a lot of attention. It's an amazing book, because, I mean, it tells you so much stuff. Zechariah 12, verse 8. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them... At that Now, this is basically, I believe, in the Battle of Armageddon we're talking about here, because God's going to come back and defend that city and, and, you know, the Jews. He shall defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, remember, he's already let it be torn down to humble them. Now he's going to defend it. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David... And the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before. I don't know. It sounds like he's supernaturally going to going to soup the Jews up from a physical standpoint. They're going to I mean look at that man. Can you imagine that? He that is feeble shall be as David. Well, what did David do? Well, he slew Goliath. He slew a bear and a lion with his basically his bare hands, just about. Um, the f- most feeble among them are going to be as David. See, through the Lord Jesus Christ, he can do great things that you could never, ever do. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Oh, me. More confirmation right here. And they shall... Now, this is Old Testament. Oh my, Old Testament. And they shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his own son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Wow. They're finally going to get their eyes opened. Finally. And in that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of had, oh boy, had a drimamon in the valley of Megiddon. So, Israel must now be introduced to the one whom their forefathers have pierced. Those who do not accept the message now should know where to take refuge when the dark clouds of God's judgments enfold on them during this terrible day of the Lord. In regard to Isaiah 13, 9-13 and Revelation 6, 12-17. A lot of these verses we've already read. The same message should be proclaimed to the enemies of the Middle East and all the people on earth. Do not deny the only one who can save your soul and the souls of all lost sinners. Only he can bring peace to a warring world by destroying the enemy forces that will be deployed in Israel according to Revelation 19, 20-21 and binding the devil who deceived the nations Revelation 21 through 3. 
after his coming, Jerusalem will be elevated to the uh, situation of a world capital. Uh, let's go to Jeremiah 3.17. Jeremiah 3.17 And at that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. When I mean, has that happened yet? Nope. It's future tense. And all the nations shall be gathered unto it to the name of the Lord to Jerusalem, neither shall they walk any more after the imaginations of their evil heart. Hey, it's right there. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Jesus Christ will be King of kings and Lord of lords according to Revelation 11.15 and 19.16. But he should also be honored for all his divine attributes right now. Jesus Christ is not only destined to be king of the Jews and the king of the world during his coming millennial reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem, he must be accepted as savior and king by all people now. He should be honored by all nations as the chief cornerstone of their constitutions now. Well, I know, and this is all well and good. Unfortunately, we know this isn't going to happen now, but it should happen, sure. Absolutely. I have, you know... Um, Jesus clearly stated that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In Matthew 28, 18, he is the king of kings and no political structure or ideology is complete or sound without expressly, formally, and devoutly recognizing the supreme authority of the triune God. The very fact of impending judgments upon the nations of the world is a direct consequence of denying the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. All true. All true. The righteousness of God, as revealed in Jesus Christ and His Word, is the only sound and expedient basis for moral norms, human rights, legal systems, and educational systems, the conspicuous absence of biblical morality, respect for human lives, a biblically based administration of justice, with suitable penalties for criminals, and Christian education accounts for all the immorality, double standards, confusion, and anarchy in the world. Don't you love the way this guy ends this? Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ can revive the image of God in human beings, which was lost because of the fall. Without his forgiving of sins and experience of being spiritually born again into a new life of Christ-likeness, we will never be able to escape the wrath of God upon the wicked, no matter how hard we try. Come to him who is mighty to save, according to Luke 19, verse 10. And I will end it there. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ, we got through everything. And I'll go ahead and close this out in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us, Lord. I just praise you for your goodness and your mercy, Lord, for, for opening our eyes to the scriptures this day. And Lord God, I know we can only have our eyes open by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord God. And I just pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive. Anyone listening to this program, I pray to God you bless them. I pray to God, if they're not saved, Lord God, that you would save their souls, for it's your will that not one would perish, and that all would come to repentance, Lord, that many would, would listen to this, and get right with thee, Lord. And that, Lord God, it wouldn't be me speaking, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, that conviction would come upon them. I pray, God, that you would forgive us for any and all sins that we've committed in any way, shape, and form, Lord God, that we would truly repent of any and all sins, Lord God, that you would cleanse us of presumptuous sins and secret faults, that they would not have dominion over us, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. I pray, Lord God, that through these broadcasts and through the body of Christ, through all the people listening to this, that your name be glorified, that many would be saved. And I do pray that your fear would be upon the body of Christ and upon the sin-sick world, and I do pray, God, and claim Psalm 64 over your enemies, Lord God, over the wicked spiritual entities in high places. 
And that we would remember every day to put on the full armor of God and remember that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against princes, principalities, rulers of wickedness in high places. Claim Psalm 64, Lord God, over these evil entities and over those, Lord God, that will not repent as you do know the beginning from the end. Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. Preserve my life from the fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity, who wet their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words that they may shoot in secret at the perfect. Suddenly do they shoot at him and fear not, and they encourage themselves in an evil manner. They commune of later snares privily. They say, Who shall see them? They search out iniquities. They accomplish a diligent search. Both the inward thought of every one of them and the heart is deep. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly shall they be wounded, so they shall make their own tongues to fall upon themselves. All that see them shall flee away, and all men shall fear and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider of his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and shall trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. And again, Lord, I know that you said in your word that you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I pray, Lord God, if it be possible, their souls be saved. We ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.